Uh, if you've got a Bible, you can turn with me to the passage that Aaron just read. It's in the Gospel of John, chapter 17, towards uh, the end of the book of John. And uh, that'll be the text we'll come back to in a few minutes. Uh, if you were here last week, we started a new teaching series, which will cover most of the fall months up until the season of Advent. Uh, it's called We Believe, and it's on the Apostles' Creed. Uh, if you missed last week, I don't usually do this, but I would actually encourage you to go back and listen to the sermon online or on the podcast. Um, we did a lot of the history behind what this creed originally was, where it came from, what it was used for by the early church, and also uh, how it might be valuable for us today as we seek to be transformed to the image of Jesus as an expression of his church here in Central Oregon. And so in general, this is a creed that um, across denominations and traditions and various expressions of the global and historic Christian church uh, is one of the things that really has united lots of different parts of Christ's body together. And a creed is essentially a summary of faith. And so we don't hold up the creed above Scripture. It's not authoritative like we believe the Word of God to be, but rather it's drawn out from Scripture and serves the Scriptures. And so we uh, would do well to recite it regularly, to meditate upon it, to even memorize it if you're able to. And it becomes for us an interpretive lens, both in dictating how we interpret the scriptures, how we read the Bible, as well as how we read the world. The creed was designed to be a formational document that helped us in a succinct and memorable way think about the world the way God sees it and to think about God the way the scriptures reveal him to be. And so uh, we're going to, we're walking through it line by line over uh, about 10 weeks or so. And um, the invitation is that you would engage this seriously and do your best even to memorize it or even work it into your rhythm of prayer, um, your practice of scripture reading on a regular basis. And uh, as I said last week, this creed has become an incredibly meaningful and helpful part of my own spiritual practice and uh, has drawn a deeper connection uh, between uh, who we are as the people of God here and now, and who God's people have been all throughout history and uh, throughout the world today. And so there's incredible strength in understanding the rootedness, the historical nature of our faith, that this isn't some latest, greatest, trendy fad um, or faith movement, that this is something that God has been doing uh, amongst his people for hundreds and hundreds of years, and we get to be part of it. And so last week, we started basically an introduction just with the first two words of the creed saying, I believe, and uh, basically said that when we confess this creed as I, we're not just speaking as individuals, but we are speaking as part of and on behalf of the singular body of Christ, the universal church. And so even if there's parts of this creed that we struggle with to understand or to believe at times, we actually profess that this is what Christ's body has and always will believe. And I find strength in that. And so uh, this week, We'll move on to the next line. In God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. So you'll notice as we move through the creed, there's these three stanzas, one about the Father, one about the Son, one about God the Holy Spirit. And so the creed is a... Uh, a Trinitarian document and gives us this robust understanding that God exists as three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so each of the three sections begins with the statement, I believe in. 
I believe in. I believe in God the Father. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son. And I believe in the Holy Spirit. It doesn't say, I believe God exists. Or I believe there is a God. But rather, I believe in God. So there's a big difference between believing something and believing in something, isn't there? What does it mean to believe in something? There's a couple different ways we, in kind of our modern use of the language, use that phrase, to believe in something or to believe in someone. And it can be a little bit confusing. So, for example, when I was probably six or seven, the original Nintendo came out. And it was a huge deal. And uh, my first friend that had it was a kid from school named Matt. And uh, we were over at his house uh, hanging out one day. And we got to play Nintendo for the very first time. And if you remember, the very first Nintendo shipped with two games. What were they? Duck Hunt and Super Mario Brothers. Exactly. And so we started playing Super Mario Brothers. And I was excited to use the gun and play Duck Hunt. And so... Uh, we asked his mom if we could play Duck Hunt, and she goes, no, we don't believe in guns in our house. And at seven years old, I'm so confused. You don't believe in guns? I've seen a gun. They're real. Like, <laughs> I could show you a picture of a gun. You've never seen a gun, right? And <laughs> I was so confused. I mean, probably for years after that, I was like... I know somebody who doesn't believe in guns. Like, how weird is that? <laughs> um, this is when we talk about believing in something like that. It's the way we talk about affirming the existence of. Like kids who believe in Santa Claus or someone who believes in ghosts or believes in UFOs. We're talking about our belief that something exists, that it's real, that it's not fake or imaginary. Okay, So that's one way we use the phrase believe in. Or sometimes we use the language of believing in to refer to our commitment to certain ideologies or principles, right? I believe in democracy. I believe in the Second Amendment because guns exist. I believe in gender equality. I believe in this or that. We're, in that case, we're not saying we have faith that those certain things actually do exist in reality. What we're saying is that we believe those things are just or right or effectively good in one way or another. And so we're talking about ways of being that we believe are the best, how things ought to be. So sometimes when we use the language of believing in, that's what we mean, a set of principles, ide ideologies, or whatever. There's another way we use the term too. What about this? Has anyone ever told you that they believe in you? Have you ever had a parent or a teacher or a coach or a friend, somebody say, I believe in you? What are they saying in that moment? They're obviously not simply saying that they think you exist as opposed to being imaginary. And they're not necessarily saying that they agree with everything you stand for or everything you believe or all the decisions you've made. But they're simply affirming your, their confidence in your abilities or qualities as a person. Most likely somebody says that to us in a moment where we're facing a challenge 
where there's something in front of us and we have a hard time believing that we are able to overcome that challenge and somebody who knows us and loves us comes alongside and says, I believe in you. Even if you don't yet believe in yourself, I believe in you. And it's an expression of their trust in the sufficiency of your character or competency. It's their way of saying, you can do this because of who you are and what you're able to accomplish. You've got this. You may be worried, but I'm not worried that you're going to fail, that you're going to drop the ball, that you're going to mess up. I trust you. You are enough. I believe in you. I would argue that that usage of the phrase believe in is the closest we have to understand the way the Bible and the historic creeds talk about believing in God. When we say we believe in God, we're not simply saying that we believe God exists. And we aren't simply affirming a certain set of ideas about God that we deem to be true, but we are saying that we trust in his character, that we are confident in his competency, that we affirm that because of who he is, that he is able to do anything. And so the New Testament phrase for believing in God is more literally translated believing into God, which sounds weird to us, but it's the idea of not a separated or a distant belief, but a belief that moves us towards, that draws us into the life of God. Not just to say, yeah, I think there's a God, but my belief moves me into God. We're believing into him. And so it's a picture of a committed trust. It's a picture of the kind of belief that has to do with knowing. And knowing has to do with relationship. And so if a complete stranger were to come up to me on the street and had no idea who I was and says, hey, man, I just want you to know I believe in you. I'd be like, I thanks. Doesn't mean anything to me, does it? That, that doesn't do anything for me. Why not? Because they don't know me. They have no reason to believe in me. But if my wife or my parents or my kids or one of my close friends or somebody who really knows me and knows what I'm going through is able to speak into my life, Pete, you can do this. You've got this. I know you. I believe in you. Then all of a sudden, that actually means something to me, doesn't it? In fact, I have a really close friend who is going through a super difficult time in his marriage right now. And we've been talking on a regular basis for the last several weeks. And this week, um, he's just ready to throw in the towel. And uh, as we're talking, he goes, I... I just can't do this anymore. I just can't make this marriage work. And I go, who told you that? Whose voice are you listening to? Of course you can do this. You can do this. I know it's hard, but I know you. I've known you for 20 years. And if there's anybody that's uniquely 
experienced and gifted and competent to face the challenge you're facing, it is you. And I'm not saying that's because I don't know you. I'm saying because I do. You can do this, right? Believing in God works that same kind of way. The obvious difference is that, of course, God isn't insecure about his identity or abilities, right? He doesn't need us to talk him into things or to cheer him up or to affirm that he's able to do whatever he's up against. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying our uh, relationship to God is the thing that actually roots true belief. That we are able to say, I believe in the Father, in who he is, in who he's revealed himself to be, through the scriptures, through the person of Jesus. I know this God. This God that's been worshipped for generations and generations and generations. I'm not affirming this creed to cheer God up or to help him think he can make it. But I am affirming this creed because I need to be reminded of who he is and what he can do. God, you are enough. I trust you. You've got this. You are everything that's needed. I don't need to look anywhere else. I don't need to be worried that you're going to fail. I don't need to be worried that you're going to drop me because I believe in you. Not just that you exist, not just what you stand for, but who you are and who you've proven yourself to be. So when we say, I believe in God the Father, I believe in Jesus his Son, I believe in the Holy Spirit, we are operating at this level of invitation to relationship, a loving relationship marked by a committed trust. And trust requires us being confident and choosing to be confident in who God is and what he's doing and what he said he's going to do without knowing exactly how it's going to work out. But saying, I trust my life to you. I trust my soul to you. I trust my identity to you because of who you are. So who is this God who we believe into, who we are trusting with our lives? Well, the author of the creed in this first stanza uses three words to begin to describe the identity of the God of the Bible. The first is that he's the father. Second is that he's almighty. And third, he's maker of heaven and earth. I want to spend a few minutes on each of those, but we'll spend most of our time on the idea that the God we believe in is the father. See, God is Father in the creed before he's almighty and before he makes anything. Almighty is an adjective. Maker is a description of something he did. But Father is essential to his being. That before God created the heavens and earth, he was already a Father. Jesus reveals to us in the scriptures a God who is Father. And Jesus reveals to us himself as the Son. And so this relationship between the Father and the Son has existed from all eternity past. That God was the Father of the Son and the Son was the, fa- uh, the Son of God before you and I or any of the cosmos were on the radar. This is essential to the biblical vision of who God is. 
that the Father and Son live in this loving relationship with one another, a perfect relationship marked by joy and harmony and, and the, perfect, uh, the perfect expression of love. And the Holy Spirit as part of this trinity is the one that mediates the love back and forth between the Father and the Son. In fact, just think about the way that they're revealed. You can't be a father without a child, and you can't be a son without a parent. So the father and son identify themselves in relationship to one another. This is central to who God is. You could maybe even go as far as to say that God is a relationship. That God exists in the perfect outpouring of love, harmonious, joyful, uh, self-giving, righteous love. And at the center of our universe is a loving relationship out of which all things were created. And so if we want to start just at the basic level and go, well, why is it that Christians have always referred to God as the Father? Where did we get that idea? Well, there's a few traces of it throughout the Old Testament, but ultimately, the clearest revelation of God's identity as Father is from Jesus. So the reason we refer to and relate to God as a Father is because that's how Jesus taught us to refer to him and relate to him. And so in the passage in John 17, the passage that Aaron read for us, what we have is the final words of the upper room discourse. The last supper as we know it that Jesus is sharing with his original apostles. And he's kind of, it's his last lecture. His weightiest words. The things that he would speak to them just moments before he's arrested. And, and eventually crucified. And Jesus ends the discourse in John 17 with a prayer. And it's, a, it's the prayer, of, it's a high priestly prayer where Jesus is interceding on behalf of himself, interceding on behalf of his disciples. And then when we get down to verse 20, Jesus intercedes or prays to the Father on behalf of all those disciples or believers that would come after this original group. So as crazy as it is to think that in those final moments before Jesus' death, who is he thinking about? He's thinking about us, you and me. Thousands of years later, thousands of miles away, of course, not only us, but all those that would come after these original. Jesus is praying that we would enter in to the relationship with the Father that he has. That his relationship with the Father would become our relationship with his Father. And so this is part of what Jesus does in revealing the character of God. In verse 25, he says, Righteous Father, though, you, though the world does not know you, I know you, and they know that you have sent me. And I've made you known to them, and I will continue to make you known in order that the love they have for, for me may be in them and that I myself, I myself may be in them. What Jesus is doing is saying there's lots of different theories and ideas and philosophies and faiths that are trying to speculate about if there's a God, who is that God and what is that God like? And Jesus is saying there's a lot of different perspectives about this, but I have come here to reveal who God really is 
and what God is really like. And he says, here's the center of that revelation. Jesus says, the God of the universe is a father. He's my father. And I know him. And I love him. And he knows me. And he loves me. And he always has. And Jesus' heart and his hope is to bring as many of the people of the world into the family of God so that his father can now become our father. I've made this point several times, but if you pay close attention to the story that the gospel writers are, are telling, I, I would argue that it is primarily the story of the love between a father and a son. All four gospels, central to the narrative of Jesus coming to the earth, of his life, his ministry, his teachings, his miracles, his suffering, death, resurrection, ascension, every single part of that story is rooted in this ongoing relationship marked by love between God the Father and God the Son. And what you'll notice, even in this prayer and the other places where Jesus prays, which we know he was always praying, Jesus doesn't relate to God as a force, but as a father, as someone he's in personal relationship with, as somebody in whom he believes. And so Jesus obviously has this incredibly unique and powerful relationship with the father, and while it's unique, it's not exclusive. It's an incredibly inclusive relationship. He invites us to join his family, to be united to him so that his father can become our father. And the reality is, and the way Jesus talks about his vision for the church, is that the father would relate to us the same way he relates to his son Christ, and that we would relate to Jesus' father as if he were our own. So what that means is that now, today, as those who have been adopted by the father, united with Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit, when we speak to God, God listens to us as if we were Jesus. If we wonder, how does God feel about me? The answer is, how does God feel about Jesus? Does God like me? Is God proud of me? Does he truly love me? Can I really trust him? Well, how would Jesus answer any of those questions? And the same is true about us. Jesus' Father has now become our Father. The clearest picture of this I've experienced in my own life, and I've mentioned it before, has to do with my relationship with Jen's parents. Uh, Brad and Sharon, um, who, by the way, many of you have prayed over the last year and have asked how my mother-in-law is doing. She's been battling uh, stage three ovarian cancer, um, went through chemo and all the treatment, and for the last six months, uh, they can't find any in her body anymore. And so with her kind of cancer, it'll be five years before they pronounce a success. But we are incredibly encouraged and joyful for the way God's uh, healed her thus far. And uh, so appreciate your prayers. All that to say, it's been a rough year for, uh, for our family. And um, Jen made several trips up to BC where they live um, to, to be with her mom as she sat through chemo and as she recovered from all the, the horror that so many of you know firsthand about that. 
Um, but this last March, just a few months ago, it was my father-in-law's 60th birthday. And so uh, Brad and Sharon came down to Bend. Jen's siblings came uh, to Bend from Seattle and San Diego. And we had a weekend set apart simply to celebrate God's goodness and faithfulness in our lives. And uh, it was an incredible time together. We had uh, good food and played fun games and did good things. At one point, we got to uh, go out for an incredible meal. And as we were kind of toasting and uh, kind of sharing what the last year had been like for each of us, there's a moment that I'll never forget where Jen's dad, as he turns 60, um, says to me and to uh, the two other kids-in-law, Jen's brother's uh, wife and sister's husband. I don't know why that's confusing to me, but there's three of us, right? Sons and daughter-in-law. And he says, over this last year, as we focused on what's important, as we've pressed in to, uh, <clears throat> to really uh, cherish every day of life, uh, he goes to me and to Chad and to Kylie, we want you to know how much we love you and that we no longer consider you just our kids' spouses. We consider you our kids. And that you are now part of this family just as much as the original three children are. Right? And um, now, we've been married 14 years, so it took them a while to get there. <laughs> <laughs> And, uh, and that's okay, I get it. Um, but that was an incredible moment for me, right? Being readopted as a 38-year-old man, Jen's father has now become my father. Her family has now become my family, and there's no asterisk next to my name. But I am now one of their kids, just as much as their own. Which is, of course exactly what Jesus is saying to us. That my father has now become yours and the father would say to us, you're not just followers of my son or friends of my son or fans of my son. You are in my son. You are my beloved and with you I'm well pleased. So this sense of belovedness, this sense of acceptance by a, by a loving father changes everything for us. Right? When we confess God as Father, this isn't just a theological idea, but this is a confession of defining relationship of our lives. This is the core of our identity, that among all the other things that may be true about us, our gender or our career or our height or our weight or our religion or whatever else, the truest thing about us has loved children of the Father, and therefore our identity can be secure in knowing that we are his and that we are loved and accepted by him. So that's what it means that God is our father. But there's also an aspect of this confession and of Jesus' prayer here as well that acknowledges father isn't just a noun, it's also a verb. Father isn't just who God is, but father is what he does. He fathers his children. He is fathering his family. He's actively involved in our lives, helping us grow and mature, providing for us, nurturing us, caring for our soul. He's deeply interested in everything that we're thinking and feeling and experiencing. 
God isn't just a father somewhere out here, but he's our father actively involved in our formation. And so, yes, we are loved and accepted exactly as we are. Our identity is safe and secure in Christ before the Father. And at the same time, though we're loved and accepted exactly as we are, God is committed to fathering us and shaping us and helping us grow into who we will be. It's both and. We are loved and accepted exactly as we are today, and we are on a journey of being redeemed, of being transformed, of being molded and made into the image of Jesus, becoming who we are. And so I often try to reflect this reality to my kids as a father. And every night when I tuck my kids in, I pray, and it's usually a really similar prayer. I'll include some of the various needs or things that we're going through as a family or whatever that kid wants to pray about. But I'll oftentimes, for example, if I'm sitting with Emma, our 10-year-old, I'll pray, Father, thank you so much for my Emma. I love her, and I love that I get to be her daddy. And I'm so thankful for who she is and for who she's becoming. I'm thankful for what you're doing in her today and for the person that she's going to be one day. And I go on and on for that. So I'm trying to say both things at the same time, right? Reflecting the father heart of God towards his people. You're loved and accepted, and I'm excited about the journey that you're on, and I'm excited that I get to be part of it. And so God is both committed to who we are um, and to who we're becoming. Now, uh, our kids are 6, 8, and 10, and so I'm at least 10 or 12 years away from being qualified to give any parenting advice, right? So far, they're pretty awesome, but <laughs> we'll see how they turn out, and then I, I may or may not be somebody you want to listen to uh, along these lines. I don't have a lot of advice, um, but I do have a couple thoughts, and let me just share one as it relates to us trying to bear the image of our God who is a father, and, and I'll just say it briefly like this. In light of the gospel, in light of our union with Christ and the nature of the relationship between the Father and Son that's always existed, what would we say is the primary emotion that God the Father has towards his children? We could probably use several different words, but I would argue biblically that God's primary emotion or disposition towards us is one of delight. God delights in his children. The delight, the pleasure, the enjoyment that he has and has always had in his own son is now extended to us. With you, I am well pleased. What if that became a paradigm for parenting? Whether your kids are tiny or whether your kids are already elderly themselves. What if our primary job isn't to raise our kids, but to enjoy them? What if we made it our goal to delight in our children, to find pleasure in them, to enjoy them, to laugh with them? Now, for some kids, that's really easy. They're really enjoyable. And other kids, it's really hard, isn't it? And there's seasons, there's ages where it's really easy delight, and then there's seasons where it's really difficult. The wisdom I received is, 
even with the hardest kids to enjoy, do your best to find one thing every day that you can draw pleasure from. One thing about who they are, one thing that they do that you're able to hold up and enjoy and delight in. Because I'm confident that the same way this gospel works in us is that as when we are secure in our belovedness and our acceptance and God's pleasure in us, from there we have a starting point to become everything that God has created us to be. That if our kids know for sure that we're pleased with them, that we love them, that we accept them, although they're far from perfect, but we enjoy them, I think that's the foundation for rich, deep, enduring, godly character to grow and to flourish. Of course, there's no guarantees, no promises. Every person is their own person. So that's where we aren't responsible for having godly kids. We're responsible that our kids have godly parents and reflect the pleasure and joy and delight of God over our children. Sounds easy enough, right? Try it. It's made a big difference. It's made a big difference in my life and in Jen's over the last several years. Ah, man, I still have Almighty and Creator, and I've only got seven minutes left. Um, <laughs> let me try to just hit something really quick, and it's for some of you, you've been tripped up this entire time so far because the language of Father is troublesome for you. Um, either based on your own experiences of having a bad dad or not having a dad at all, or at kind of a more big-picture perspective that uh, this masculine language of, of father has to do with um, <clears throat> uh, all of the problems in the world today, right? Um, that privilege is plated, is plated in masculine language or that God is gendered or this picture that we have that if God is male, so to speak, then males are the more privileged or important. And I want to be the first to say on both fronts, from your personal experience with a father, an earthly father, or from whatever you're troubled with as it relates to the inequality of gender and the oppression of women throughout history and throughout the church's history in particular, those are valid and real concerns. And they've been wrestled with and have troubled many souls over the years. And I don't have the time or, or the ability to really get in and heal those wounds for any of us. But what I simply want to offer is this perspective, is that from the very beginning of the origins of Christian doctrine, as those writers of scripture and early leaders in the church were trying to synthesize the teachings of Jesus and the story of God, they have been aware of this struggle, been aware of this tension, that the masculine gendered language that we use to refer to God as father could be problematic, could be misused and abused, and it has been. It has been. So on one hand, we acknowledge that. On the other hand, we say... Um, Jesus referred to God as his father, and so as followers of Jesus, we're going to continue to refer to and relate to God as father, but we need to not read our ideas of masculinity, gender, hierarchy, uh, patriarchy, all that stuff that we've experienced in culture and translate that up to what God's like. 
but rather say, what has God revealed himself to be like in Scripture and in Jesus, and let that be the foundation for how we understand all these definitions and all these issues. And so surprisingly, many commentators have noted that uh, the juxtaposition of God the Father and Almighty, at first glance to our ears, Almighty sounds like a masculine word, that it speaks of his power, his strength, his might, right? But the early church fathers, as they wrestled with these questions, their most common metaphor when speaking of the power of God was a nursing mother. When speaking of the mighty strength, the, su- the sufficiency, the omnipotency of God, the word, the picture that they used is like a mother holding a newborn at her breast. It's not the picture of loyal subjects submitting to a powerful ruler, but infants drawing life from a nurturing mother. And the idea is that God's power is not only above us. It's not the way we think about power. But God's power, God's might is alongside us. It's beneath us. It's within us. It's not the power of subjection and control, but it's a power that frees and sustains and enables One of the early church leaders, St. Augustine, described the divine power of God as maternal love expressing itself as weakness. So when Jesus reveals God as Father, that's not a statement about his gender or sexuality. That's not how they thought about it, nor should we. But it's simply a definition of an intimate, life-giving relationship And like the early church leaders, like the writers of Scripture, we need to let God's revelation change our minds about the nature of reality. And so the truth is, we often think of power as the ability to control. But that's not how the Bible reveals the power of God. In fact, as we know, controlling behavior is actually a sign of weakness and insecurity. True power is the ability to love without reserve. God's power, like a nurturing mother's, is the capacity to nourish, to care for, and to help the freedom of the other grow. And so in this creed, we confess the three great movements from Father, Son, Holy Spirit that speak of God's power, but none of it has to do with ruling or domineering or controlling. It all like a nurturing mother, has to do with releasing, with giving, with self-emptying. Giving of ourself so that the world might have life. God lovingly creates, makes the heavens and the earth all that is. And he brings it into being as an act of love. God lovingly in Jesus enters the womb, born of a woman, and becomes part of the world that God has made. And then God, by the Holy Spirit, lovingly is transforming the world in and through the church. And so, this picture of a Father Almighty 
of somebody who's nurturing us, loving us, caring for us, but is also inviting us to join him as he remakes the heavens and the earth. Not only gives incredible significance to our own identity, but opens up a lifelong adventure of following Jesus, becoming like him, and joining him on what he's doing in the world. Let me close with a short quote from a uh, monk named Martin Layard. Let me tell you who you are. You are a ray of God's own light. You say you seek God, but a ray of light doesn't seek the sun. It's coming from the sun. You're a branch on the vine of God. A branch doesn't seek the vine. It's already part of the vine. And a wave doesn't look for the ocean. It's already full of ocean. Because you don't know that who you are is one with God, you believe all these labels about yourself. I'm a sinner, I'm a saint, I'm a wretch, I'm a worm, I'm a monk, I'm a nurse. These are all labels, clothing. They serve a purpose, but they are not who you are. Brothers and sisters, you are the beloved sons and daughters of God. You are the ones that he is committed to today and for the rest of eternity. And you are the ones that he's invited to join him on this mission of remaking the heavens and the earth to his glory. So we'll come this morning to receive the life of Jesus again through the bread and through the cup and to trust him, who he is, what he's said, and what he's going to do. Will you stand and pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have accepted and adopted us as your own in Christ. And that's hard to wrap our minds around. That's hard to believe at times. But we do believe in you. We're believing into you, our Father. That you are mighty. That you are the creator. You are the one who made our life and holds our life. And so you are the one who we trust. We pray that this morning that you would help us to pay attention to the ways that you are fathering us. The ways that you want to teach us, shape us, the things you want us to know and learn and experience. Maybe even the loving and careful discipline that we're going through. We pray that we would be receptive, obedient, and trusting children. Father God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, we believe in you today. In Jesus' name.